if you could keep that passage open in front of you, John chapter 1, uh, that would be tremendous, and pray with me that God would speak to us in it. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, you are the God who reveals yourself, graciously reveals yourself so that we might see and know you in Jesus Christ. We pray that we would know you today, that you would speak to us, that we would feel your transforming power. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today and over the next five weeks, I want to speak about a simple word so extraordinary that it can change your life. This was supposed to be my big uh, wind up, uh, my big tension, reveal, mystery, what word would it be? But Kate's already told you what the word is. So uh, just imagine that you didn't know what word it was. It's a word that, once you understand it, makes the whole world seem different. It can give you hope and joy and peace. It makes you humble and yet gives you confidence. It gives you rest and yet fills you with purpose. It gives you plenty of work to do. It turns you to love not just those whom you like, but those whom you loathe. It makes you free, free as anyone who has ever been free, and yet binds you to other people in love. It's a word that's changed my own life completely and keeps changing it day by day. What's the word? Well, it's an amazing word. It's grace. It's a tiny word, but it's, a, it's an explosive nuclear bomb of a word. It just changes everything when it goes off. Now, I don't, I don't know what you think of when you think of the word grace. I think if we put the word grace as a sort of word association game, we might think, well, grace is the thing you say before meals, maybe, or perhaps you think of uh, something grace or someone graceful. Uh, people used to think of the old movie star Audrey Hepburn as being the sort of epitome of grace because she had these mannerisms. She just looked so still as she walked. Uh, she was like a graceful swan. Would, the swan would be the animal that most represented grace to us. But that's not what the word means in its original sense. Grace means undeserved kindness from God. Grace means the undeserved kindness of God. The kindness that we don't deserve that comes from God. It's God showing us his mercy when we haven't earned it and when we don't deserve it. Now at St. Mark's, we want to be transformed by grace to love the world. Transformed by this word grace to love the world. As a community and as individual Christians, we want this idea to shape us in every way. For it to be our hallmark. It's an idea we need reminding of, even if we've been Christians for years, because very often we don't see its transforming power at work, or we forget about it, or we don't let it change us. We think grace is an idea for the start of the Christian life, a sort of elementary principle rather than an advanced one, the sort of training wheels you need if you're kind of getting used to riding a bike, one we can then take off and graduate past. But we can never graduate past this word grace. Grace is the beginning, middle, and end of the whole Christian life. So how can we let it do its transforming, explosive work in you and me? What are we going to do? Well, I want to tell you the story about a person whose life was utterly transformed by grace. And this person lived 500 years ago. In fact, we celebrate the transforming moment that occurred to him 500 years ago this year. And his name is Martin Luther. Now, at the time, 
Luther was a young German monk. He was wrestling with God. And he just couldn't work out how he was supposed to please God. Now, he'd made a pretty good attempt. He was a monk after all. He, he prayed earnestly. That was his job. He prayed and prayed. He fasted. He went without food in order to concentrate his mind on praying. No matter how hard he worked in, in and around the monastery, Luther just couldn't think about God without thinking that God was kind of mad at him. That God was displeased and God was annoyed. He thought of God a bit like Homer Simpson thinks of God. That is, he's always kind of mad, isn't he? That's how Luther thought of God as well. God was this sort of foreboding and scary presence. Thinking about God filled him with terror. The more he examined himself, the more he could only imagine himself damned to hell itself. He was a restless and uneasy soul. He believed that God was measuring human performance, that getting into heaven was like trying to pass a sort of spiritual HSC, but that the ATAR for graduating was actually 100% or even more. God was just that mean and stingy. So where could he find peace with God? He tried everything. More spiritual discipline, more prayer, getting up an hour earlier to pray even more, more confession, more fasting. But when he went back to read the Bible, he discovered a completely different flavor, something different completely in the air, in the pages of the Bible. Christianity in the Bible is proclaimed as good news. That's what the word gospel means, good news. The Bible speaks about the year of the Lord's favor. It speaks again and again of God's mercy and his loving kindness, his patience and his love. So what had Luther been missing? What was wrong? Well, he'd only heard the bad part of the good news. He'd heard that God is holy and that human beings have fallen short of his holiness. And that is true. But when he read the New Testament, the scales fell from his eyes and his life completely changed. Paul, the apostle, writes in Romans, and actually, as it turned out, Luther had to give some lectures on the book of Romans, so in God's providence, and he was forced to look at it really carefully. And Paul writes in the book of Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Luther had kind of grasped that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even you, you monk, you're pretty good. You're pretty much at the top of the class as far as human beings go. But even you have fallen short of the, of the glory of God. And that would be bad news if he hadn't read the rest of the sentence. Because, you see, Paul goes on and he says this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they are now justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. They are justified by God's grace as a gift. By God's grace, God makes it so that the sinner is not condemned anymore, which is just as well because without grace, there is no chance. And how does this grace come about? How do we receive this amazing clearance of our name, this justification? Is it something we earn through being a decent enough person or for having good Christian values? People, when they come to see me, sometimes they say, uh, partly because I'm a minister and so I, they think I sort of represent God, so they want to talk to me as a sort of one of God's adjuncts or something, and they say, I've been pretty good. I've done, I have Christian values, though I haven't, you know, I don't, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a worshipper, but I still have Christian values. I'm a pretty good person, really. You know, I'm at least I'm a 50 or 
I will have, I've earned something, haven't I? And they kind of want me to tick off and say, yeah, yeah, you're okay. But that's not how you receive God's grace. Not at all. You receive God's grace as a gift. It's not a wage that you earn after your hard day's work at McDonald's. You turn up, you want what you've earned. Your $4 an hour. What does McDonald's pay these days? Your 4 bucks an hour? You've earned it. And you're cross if they don't give it to you. You've deserved it. But God's grace is not like that. By definition, it is a gift given. You cannot earn it. You can see the difference in Luther's life when, you, when we see portraits of Luther. Now, I didn't have uh, Instagram in those days or selfies, but Luther did get his portrait painted. He was very lucky to have a friend who was a portrait painter, which was a good kind of friend to have in those days. And someone uh, painted his picture before he realised this in 1517 and then painted his picture. We have many portraits of him after that. And the thing you notice is this. Before 1517, before Luther understood about grace, Luther is skinny and kind of sunken-cheeked and anxious-looking and he's kind of got bags under his eyes. He looks a worried and concerned kind of individual, not at, ha not at one with himself. After 1517, he's a roly-poly fatso because he loves, all of a sudden, he understands the goodness and the grace of God. He understands joy. He becomes completely transformed and you can see it physically. He's not, he doesn't need to kind of waste himself away in trying to impress God. He became fatter with the joy of knowing the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. He would later write this. He would say, grace is given to heal the spiritually sick, not to decorate spiritual heroes. Grace is given to heal the spiritually sick, not to decorate spiritual heroes. Grace is not some medal that you earn for going over the top because you're such a superhuman saint. Luther was not this. And neither, if, unless I'm mistaken, are any of us here. We are the spiritually sick. Bad news, maybe. The good news is that we have the medicine we need. We have God's grace, what we need to be well. He also wrote this. He said, we find no rest for our weary bones unless we cling to the word of grace. No rest for our weary bones. Luther found in this idea of grace, in the grace of God, rest and joy, peace and purpose. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to explore this word grace from several passage, famous passages in the New Testament. But grace is not just a concept or an idea floating off somewhere in the realm of thoughts. You can see the transformative power it had on someone's life, on Luther's, Martin Luther's life. Grace took flesh. Grace walked amongst us. Grace was three-dimensional in the life and times of Jesus Christ. He was the grace of God in the flesh, in three dimensions, in sweat and blood, in fingernails and feet. And from him, grace flows from abundance. Have a look at John's gospel, that first chapter and verse 14. John says there, the word became flesh, Jesus became flesh and lived among us. Literally, he says, pitched his tent, went camping with us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. From his fullness, verse 16, we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So what does this mean? Jesus 
is full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. But just having something doesn't mean you use it. I have a bike and I have a set of golf clubs. I enjoy cycling and I enjoy golf. In theory. Uh, I actually have two sheds and the bike is in one shed and the golf clubs are in another. Having these objects does not mean that I actually do them. Having them doesn't mean I'm really a cyclist or a golfer. I am one in theory, potentially, maybe. But God's grace is not like my golf clubs. God's grace is not like my bicycle. God's grace is not just in theory, it is in practice. It takes shape in Jesus Christ. The word made flesh. And it is dynamic and transformative. God's grace is put into practice. It takes place in our world. We did not deserve God to put on a human body and live among us. And yet from the depth of his love and the riches of his mercy, God the Son became flesh and went camping, pitched his tent with us. Who did it cost for this to happen? One thing you learn about modern life, of course, is that it costs someone something. Everything costs someone something somewhere. Who did it cost for Jesus to come and slum it with us? Did it cost us a bean? No. It cost him. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Those are the words that Charles Wesley wrote years ago. But wasn't this Jesus' job? I once heard Ricky Gervais interviewed and he said, you know, forgiveness, isn't that God's your job? Isn't he, that's God's supposed to do that, isn't he? Most unpleasant character, Ricky Gervais, in my opinion. Um, I hope that's not going on the tape. Maybe he'll sue me. Uh, wasn't, he, wasn't he just doing what he was made to do, like an electrician that fixes your wiring? It isn't particularly interesting when the tradesman comes to your house, does what you've called him to do, and you thank him and pay him afterwards. He's earned it. He's just done what he's supposed to do. Jesus was not like that. Jesus came to live amongst us entirely of his own free will. It was a voluntary act. It wasn't compulsory. It was extraordinary. And that is the essence of this idea of grace it, is, it comes freely to us, and it is freely given by God to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus, says John, was full of grace and truth, and from his fullness we received grace upon grace. I love this phrase, grace upon grace. Well, one translation has it, grace after grace. It's like Jesus is full of this incredible stuff that just keeps flowing uh, and do you, know, you know when you go to Christmas dinner and it's a buffet and there's lamb and you put lamb on your plate and then there's pork and crackling and you put that on top as well and then maybe you go back and put some more lamb on and put some vegetables to keep grandma happy and then you put some potatoes and then it's like this kind of heaped up meal of grace just you know food upon food we imagine that here grace upon grace gallons and gallons of God's grace just flows out from Jesus. It's no mistake that John puts that story of Jesus at the wedding of Cana just after this, where Jesus turned water into wine and not just a little bit of wine, lots and lots and lots of wine, and not just, not just kind of Chateau Box-style wine, but the Grange Hermitage, the best stuff. Now, I don't know if you know Norman Lindsay's classic Aussie kids' tale, The Magic Pudding. Does anyone know the... Classic, hardly anyone anymore. And I get that because I think it's pretty 
terrible story, actually. But this story, it kind of was uh, the classic kid's tale uh, written in Australia, and it's a story about a pudding. You might have guessed that, because that's the title, The Magic Pudding. And the pudding is magic. Hence, and what's magic about the pudding? The pudding is magic because if you eat a slice, it never runs out. You can eat some of the pudding, and there's always more of the pudding left. Unfortunately, that's about the high point of the story. I haven't spoiled anything. It doesn't really go anywhere. Jesus is like that in his abundance of grace. It never runs out, which means that the kindness that God has for us just flows out through Jesus in this never-ending stream. What else does this mean? Is it more than, well, you know, we thought God was mad, but turns out he's quite kind after all. Well, in verse 17, we get just a bit more information, a bit more content. John says, the law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This tells us a lot about what Martin Luther experienced in 1517. Moses, remember, delivered the law. The commandments of God, remember those? They reveal the character of God. They tell us what God wants human beings to be. He wants us to worship him exclusively. He wants us to love our neighbors, to live in love with others. And God, God is love, and to live in that love means to obey his holy commands. But the law is deadly. It's deadly. To read it, to read the law, to read the list of God's commands is like doing, having an MRI on your soul. One of those terrible scans that looks at your inside. And you can see as you get that MRI scan for your soul, the dark spots that are there, the deadly dark spots on your soul that mean death. But if the law, with its terrible consequence, came through Moses, grace and truth, says John, came through Jesus Christ. Grace is like chemotherapy for the soul. Remember, Luther said, grace is given to heal the spiritually sick, not to decorate spiritual heroes. The diagnosis of the law is grim. We're done for. We're sick. You and I, we're sick in spirit. But the cure of the grace that comes from Jesus Christ is full of joy. It is life and health and peace. That Jesus, the Son of God, walked amongst human beings means that God's mercy is here for you and me. A mercy that simply outflanks the law. It just beats it. It trumps it entirely. One of the most beautiful things about grace, the grace of God, is that it does not deny that there is a problem. It speaks the truth to us. Jesus was full of grace and truth after all. If everything is okay, if we really are all right, if our world is really going all right, we don't need grace. But you and I know the truth is otherwise. We are given grace because the problem really is dire. But if the problem of sin is deep, then the grace of God is deeper still. The depths of our disgrace are not too deep for the grace of God. And Jesus actually lived it too. His life was an enactment, an embodiment of grace. If we want to learn about this grace, we need only contemplate, remember the story about Jesus. What, he, what his life looked like. You know, it wasn't a lot like Audrey Hepburn. It wasn't too swan-like. 
The grace of God that was alive in Jesus Christ involved sweat and tears and eventually blood. It was grace when Jesus forgave the sins of the man who couldn't walk. It was grace when he taught people about the kingdom of God being as tiny as a mustard seed that would grow into the biggest plant of all. It was, a grace, it was grace when he condemned the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and he released the people from their terrible reign by pointing out the exposing hypocrisy. It was grace when he healed the lepers. It was grace when he went to eat with Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who had to climb a tree to see him because he was so short and who had cheated people out of their money. And as a result of that grace, that encounter, Zacchaeus paid it back many times over. It was grace when he fed the 5,000 by, by the shores of the lake and there were baskets and baskets and baskets left over. It was grace when Jesus was tempted in the desert by Satan and yet responded by quoting the Bible at the devil and, and, and went, came through his temptation, beat off his tempter. It was grace even when he was fired by anger at the misuse of God's holy place, the temple, and cleared it. It was grace when he wept by the tomb of his friend Lazarus. It was grace when Jesus went to Jerusalem, when he could have escaped, when he could have gone for a holiday by the seaside. It was grace when he taught his disciples about death, about his death, as the sacrificial lamb, as the one who would die for the sins of his people. And it was grace when he prayed in the garden, not my will, but yours. He went to his cross and he died there, full of grace and truth, not denying the reality and the seriousness of our sin, but bearing it upon himself in his beaten and bruised body. It cost us precisely nothing. It cost him precisely everything. It comes to us free. It is freely given by him. Did he have to? It was not necessity that drove him, but his free and loving obedience to his father and his loving concern for you and me. It was pure, unadulterated kindness. Have you received this kindness, this grace upon grace? Have you opened your hands and your heart to receive the grace of God that is in Jesus Christ for you? Now, it sounds remarkably simple, but we find it very hard because we have to lay aside our pride and our wanting to do everything for ourselves. We love the idea of self-reliance. You know that that's the name of the sort of the quasi-religion of North Korea. It's the sort of the ideology of uh, self-reliance. It's the faith of self-reliance. Uh, ironically, of course, that really names the religion of the West as well. We really believe in ourselves. We love the idea of self-reliance just as they do. But the grace of God tells us that self-reliance is a great foolishness. It's our humble dependence on God that we need. So you may be missing what grace is because it's such an up, upside-down, topsy-turvy, counterintuitive idea. My uncle, who's a minister, he once sent off a uh, leaflet to the printer. This is in the days when you would send off leaflets to, to printers. With the talk title, he was giving some talks, and the talk title that he wanted the printer to print was Only Bad People Go to Heaven. Only bad people go to heaven. That's grace. Only bad people go to heaven. The printer read this and thought, there's got to be a typo there. And so he changed it. So he got, he got back you know, 500 posters with... Only good people go to heaven on it. That's how easy it is for us not to get grace. It seems so topsy-turvy, and yet it's true. Only bad people 
go to heaven. Grace is for the spiritually sick, not for spiritual heroes, which means you and me. So we need to take steps to let grace wash over us, transform us, even if that's something we've known for a long time, even if we've been a Christian all our lives. We need to spend time each day in God's word, in the presence of Jesus Christ, hearing the story of his grace. We need to come to God in prayer. As we practice each week, we practice praying so that we can learn how to pray in our own lives. We confess our sins completely openly and honestly because we know we are ready to receive, opening ourselves to receive grace. We thank God for his mercy and we bring our needs to him. And as we do so, we'll be opening ourselves to God's transforming grace. If you feel God, God's grace has not transformed you, then developing a regular practice of prayer is the answer. Remember what Luther said, grace is given to heal the spiritually sick, not healthy, not to decorate spiritual heroes. Believing grace means realizing that you are spiritually sick. But believing grace means that you have spiritually healing, spiritual healing. And remember the other thing that Luther said, we find no rest for our weary bones unless we cling to the word of grace. Have you found the rest, the peace? that Martin Luther was speaking about. Do you know it? If I had to say one thing about the spiritual condition of contemporary Sydney, it would be that we are a restless people, frenetically busy, with so few spare hours. We cannot find peace. There is no stillness in our city. We swing from exhilaration to exhaustion, to exhilaration to exhaustion, and back again. We spend part of our time hungry for peace, looking for that still point in the, in the swirling hurricane-like world, and part of our time trying to forget that we just don't have it. But the grace of God is our peace, is our welcome home. With Jesus Christ, we find a God who is overflowing with grace upon grace, with the kindness and the comfort and the peace, the rest that we seek. Jesus, after all, said this, and he meant this was grace itself. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Was there ever such a word delivered, to, needed by the city of Sydney in the 21st century? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Do you want rest for your weary bones? Come to Jesus Christ and find it in his grace, and he pours out grace upon grace. Let's pray. God of all grace, Father of mercy, we thank you that in Jesus Christ you showered your grace upon the world. We pray that you would ready us to receive it, that you would transform us by it, that you would never dull our senses to this idea that we would always be ready and uh, sensitive to your grace, ready to understand it, to receive it, to speak our word of thanks to you and to see it take shape in our lives. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.